In Venezuela, there is a river called the Orinoco River. Near the mouth of that river, where it empties into the Caribbean Sea, is where Tituba was born, into a tribe that was part of the Arawak Nation. Even though it had been 80 years since the arrival of Columbus the Conqueror and his invading hordes, her people still lived a life of ease and plenty. There were abundant fish in the rivers and game in the forest for hunting. They cultivated gardens and farms and a time for leisure, games, and festivals. They had a reputation as an easygoing, open, and friendly people. The village was an extended family. Children were showered with love and affection, and adults were encouraged to be their best selves. Her people believed that the forest was full of spirits. Good spirits, such as the personal guardians and protectors that they prayed to and honored with symbols and carvings in their homes, as well as spirits of the dead and evil monstrous creatures that roamed the forest. Birds were important messengers to them and could speak with the dead or warn of impending harm. They thought of their dreams as being real and believed that events that occurred in the dream world were just as real as what had happened during the waking hours. This is the world Tituba was born into. One morning when she was just a little girl, Tituba, along with her mothers and sisters, went to go trade with some white men aboard their great ship that had come up the river. They had done this before several times and it was not uncommon to trade with the white men. As before, they were helped up on board the ship by the men, but this time they were immediately taken hold of. Some of her sisters tried to swim for shore, but the men were ready for this, took their canoes and chased them down. They were thrown under the decks and chained together in the bottom of the ship. The smell of the ship and the darkness under the decks assaulted her senses. Her mother and sisters cried and wailed for help, help that never came. She sat listening to the strange sound of the men's voices above and the creaking of the ship as they sailed out to sea. They all cried and wailed bitterly and became terribly seasick and eventually went silent and numb. A month later they arrived at the island of Barbados and were put on the auction block and sold to different sugar plantations. She never saw her mother and sisters again. She watched from the platform as they were taken away on carts, and strange men shouted out numbers to the auctioneer as they bid on her. From then on, Tituba grew up on a plantation owned by her white masters. The plantation owners did not trust the African slaves to take care of their houses or to make them their food. 
So they had the indigenous native women as their servants in the house, and the African slaves cut the sugar cane. But every night Titubu would go back down to the slave houses where she lived with the other slaves. She learned many West African traditions. She heard their stories, and they reminded her of the stories that she had heard as a child. And she saw that the African slaves also used images and figures for magic. The older women of the plantation would take care of her and stepped in to provide motherly support for the young Arawak slave as she grew from a young girl into her teens. At this stage in time, the slave masters did not force Christianity onto the slaves and let them continue with their own traditions and religious beliefs. This blending together of native, African, and European cultures was the birth of what we today call the Creole culture. Tituba was not her real name. No one knows what her real name was. Her tribe was called the Tibetibe, and the name Tituba refers to a woman from the Tibetibe. So that is what they called her. Her real name, the name her parents gave her, the name used to call for her in the village, was always a secret. And she never told anyone what it was. No one ever asked. She always knew what her real name was. She knew that it was her name, and no one could take that away from her. Barbados was not that different from the land of Tituba's birth. It had similar plants and climate, but most of the people there were African slaves with their white masters. There were a few native slaves working in the houses. One of the main reasons the English preferred the native people for house slaves 
was that they knew how to prepare the local foods. They knew how to remove the poison from the cassava root and make bread and wine from it. In the house, Tituba was taught to speak English, and she had to wear English clothes, which seemed like an immense burden of weight and layers upon her. She answered to the lady of the house, an older woman who was the mother of the plantation's owner. She too, like the slave women, took Tituba under her wing, and even acted as a sort of mother figure to her at times. Her mistress taught her about the magic of the English, and here too Tituba found similarities to the ideas and beliefs of her own Arawak people, as well as the Africans on the plantation. Her mistress would have Tituba sweep out the hearth every night in order to keep the fairies away, and she showed her how to find out if a witch had cast a curse and how to stop it. She taught Tituba ways to predict the future by reading palms, how to use protective charms, and how to identify a thief. Her mistress was what the English called a cunning woman, a person skilled in the use of spells, incantations, herbal healing, and fortune telling. And she shared books on these ideas and arts with a network of other cunning practitioners on the island. The ancient rituals were often easy to learn to teach to others in the community and to pass down through the generations. One simply had to have faith in the power of the ritual and to do it the right way. The cunning magicians of the English could be found in every community in the old country and they kept themselves busy with healing, fortune telling, advising the love lord, removing curses, and perhaps most importantly, delivering babies, and performing abortions. Aside from cunning folk, they were also called prophet, dowser, astrologer, charmer, spellcaster, wizard, conjurer, treasure finders, exorcist, and midwife. Tituba was purchased by Samuel Paris. The young master Paris was a devout Puritan and a man bitter beyond his years, disappointed with himself, constantly struggling against adversity and seeking the approval of a father who had died a few years before. This was a man who believed that he was better than others and deserved a high place in life. He was left a smaller than expected inheritance from his father and had to drop out of Harvard to go back to Barbados and manage his father's estate. But he failed as a businessman in Barbados and decided to move to Boston, where his Puritan faith held its stronghold, its citadel, its city on the hill. When they arrived in Boston after a long sea voyage, Tituba finally began to appreciate the heavy English clothes that she was made to wear. The sensation of the cold and how it bit into her skin was alien, surprising, 
and unsettling. Everything was different now. The buildings in Boston were made of brick. The trees were different. The food was different. And the people were almost all white. There were very few of the native people left. They had been defeated in the bloody destruction of King Philip's war about ten years before. After failing at commerce with a trading venture on the Boston docks, Samuel Paris decided to take up the ministry. As a fervent Puritan, he had connections with the First Church in Boston, and the idea of being a minister appealed to the sense he had of himself as a man above the rest of the flock. He took a position in the troubled farming community of Salem Village, up the road from the more prosperous Salem town, which was the second largest port town in the colony after Boston. He thought that this would be a place in which he could finally rise to his rightful position as a righteous leader of the community. But he stepped into a hornet's nest of rivalry, jealousy, and suspicion that had been festering for generations. After intense negotiations with the villagers, in which he demanded much that was above and beyond what most ministers received, he immediately began to alienate many villagers with his incendiary, fire and brimstone, Jeremiah sermons, in which he demanded obedience and servitude from the villagers to the church, and more specifically, to himself. Many forces were combining into a tragic whirlwind, continuing war with the native nations, epidemics of disease, political instability, a patriarchal and authoritarian culture that repressed young girls and filled the thinking of all people with extreme self-doubt, and the collision of old and new worlds. A perfect storm was brewing 